This is the Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you by thecourtleader.net and in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. Every state in the country has a judicial code of conduct. Every judge in each state is obligated to follow that state's code. Since 1973, most federal judges have been subject to the Code of Conduct for United States judges. There is only one group exempt from the duty to follow these codes. That group consists of the justices of the United States Supreme Court. To be fair, over the years, accusations of scandal have been rare within the court. Until recently, one had to go back to Abe Fortas, who in 1969 was accused of accepting a retainer from a private foundation. Lately, however, claims of bias have been on the rise. Justices have been known to receive monetary advances for book deals. There have been accusations of inappropriate public comments, the premature release of information on upcoming decisions, and even draft opinions leaked. As a result, public approval of the court has sharply declined. A recent Gallup poll showed 40% of the public approving of the Supreme Court while 59% disapproved. I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leader's Advantage podcast series. This month, we're asking, should the United States Supreme Court adopt a code of conduct? Adopting such a code might help rehabilitate the court's image. On the other hand, a code could damage, if not destroy, the court's independence. Some of the questions we'll look at include, what are the implications of adopting a code? What are the implications of doing nothing? Justices must already submit financial disclosure forms, and they're prohibited from accepting gifts that could influence their judicial decision-making. Are these existing safeguards adequate? Voluntary recusal from a case is the chief remedy for judicial conflict of interest. Is that sufficient? Here to discuss these questions are the Honorable Ed Spillane, Judge of the Municipal Court in College Station, Texas. The Honorable Sherry Stevens, retired judge with the Superior Court in Maricopa County, Arizona. And Carl Tonis, court administrator with the Second Judicial Circuit Court in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Thank you all for joining today's podcast. Let's start off by asking, are there advantages to the court and to society for adopting a code of conduct? Judge Spillane? Yes, there are definitely advantages for having adopting a code of conduct for all judges, and we're focusing on the U.S. Supreme Court. I believe with ethical situations, it's mostly and very much about appearance. Obviously, substantively, we should be following a high standard of ethics, and the highest court should also be following a high standard of ethics, but also there needs to be an appearance Two, that that the court is in concert with other federal judges, other judges in terms of a code of conduct. So the advantages are, number one, for the judges, it makes it very clear what and how judges are supposed to behave and what an appropriate appearance is. And it also allows judges not to reinvent the wheel. I think we get into problems when judges, because most of us 
believe we are very fair people. We probably are internally very fair people. But as I mentioned, appearance matters, I think, with ethics. And if you don't have a code, then you don't necessarily have that appearance that the public can look to. We'll probably talk later about enforcement because I think that's the you know difficult issue with that. But we have things, you know, uh, we have numerous laws that are difficult to enforce that often are supported just because they're out there. They may tell people, give people an idea of how to act. And, you know, I'll give an example of the no texting while you're driving. Very hard to enforce a lot of times, but just having that out there sends a message of what's appropriate in terms of safe driving. Similar to that, I think all judges should have a code of conduct. Again, we'll talk about enforcement, but it helps the judges know how to act, but it also sets an appearance standard for the public on how uh, we actually do hold ourselves as judges and act. Judge Stevens? There is a code of conduct for judges that applies to all United States judges except justices of the United States Supreme Court. It is a set of aspirational rules, and it provides that judges must act at all times in a manner that promotes public confidence in the integrity and impartiality of the judiciary. That code serves as an advisory guidance for judges, and just as Judge Spillane just said, I think it's important that there is a standard set of rules that everyone can look to for guidance. And in addition, I think it sends an important message to other attorneys, other courts, and the public that the United States Supreme Court takes their job seriously and that they do care about impartiality and independence. Now, the Code of Conduct for United States Judges is billed as aspirational, and yet an enforcement mechanism is built in. Aren't these two directions contradictory? Carl? You put your finger on an issue that I think immediately arises. Preparing for the session, I thought to myself, well, you know, you and I have done codes for court employees for years, and I think, just as Judge Spillane mentioned, they've got lots of really good advantages for clarity and guidance and forethought when these situations arise. I think you put your finger on it. Even if the Supreme Court were to adopt something entirely aspirational, if you look at the ABA model code for judges, for example, the footnotes run for pages and pages. The what-if scenarios, the practical applications, the sanction questions immediately arise, no matter how aspirational the underlying principles may be. So I think you're exactly right. That's one of the discussions. That's one of the dilemmas is that, okay, you can do something aspirational, but it immediately runs into hard reality and practical situations. I do, though, distinguish enforcement, and I have my creative ideas on enforcement to talk about. I think it'll probably be in an internal amongst the Supreme Court, but mm -hmm. I do distinguish enforcement from those aspirational. I think those aspirationals help with in terms of the appearance. It helps as guidelines for the judges to follow. And I, you know, I when I was a, a judge, there are a lot of situations when it comes down to recusal and not doing something and or doing, and often it's not doing something like writing a recommendation for someone or using your court. Most of these involve recusal. I mean, they involve appearance of a conflict of interest. And I think 
if you don't have some specific aspirationally, then you just open the door to two problems. One, the public essentially, and this is true, there isn't a rule for the U.S. Supreme Court. I think that's problematic that they don't have a rule at all. I mean, I think the public, that doesn't make sense. I mean, just if you think about it, it just doesn't seem to make sense that there's no rules for them. But secondly, then they really have to reinvent their own and become almost their own manager themselves. And I think that's a problem. My solution would be to have the rest of the Supreme Court decide that. I know that's tough because I I do see problems Mm -hmm. with Congress or a lower court. You know, when the recusal statutes were created in a lot of states, everyone said there's going to be a waterfall of recusals. Every lawyer is going to be filing them. Turns out that's not happened as a practical reality. Maybe because if your recusal, which often gets denied, then you've also, you know, made a statement to that judge they can't be fair. But whatever the reason, uh, there hasn't been a waterfall. And I don't think there's going to be a waterfall of problems if they do have an actual or, or they adopt the federal code for the most part, like what other federal judges have to do. Are there disadvantages to adopting a code? Judge Stevens? Uh, Thank you. All right. I did some reading on this topic in preparation for today's discussion. And uh, some argue that creating a code of ethics isn't necessary because compliance with the code would be voluntary recusal or disqualification. And that is already occurring with some justices. If it's not broken, don't fix it. So creating a code could create issues that don't currently exist. Some argue that recusal or disqualification, except in extreme circumstances, is not consistent with the responsibilities of a justice sitting on the United States Supreme Court. For example, Justice Breyer has commented that he has a duty to sit on cases. The argument goes that the United States Supreme Court is a separate branch of government, It governs itself, and when a justice is appointed and confirmed by the Senate, there is a thorough vetting process that reveals that judge's judicial philosophies. That justice alone, then, should decide whether it is appropriate for them to sit on a particular case. The second uh, disadvantage noted with the Code of Ethics is that the recusals and disqualifications change the number of justices sitting on a particular case, and that could have a very significant impact on any given decision. Arguably, adopting a Code of Ethics could result in more recusals or disqualifications because a specific standard has been created. Unlike lower courts, where another judge can step into a case No one else can substitute for a United States Supreme Court justice, not a retired justice, and not someone from a lower federal court. Thus, when a justice recuses or is disqualified, it is likely to affect the outcome of that case. Another concern in the materials is that a written code of ethics could be used by some parties as a means to seek out recusal or disqualification for certain justices that may not have a very favorable opinion about a litigant's case. It could be advantageous for a litigant to try to disqualify a justice so their case will be decided in a fashion favorable to them. And finally, the last disadvantage that I saw in the materials is that like all rules and regulations, there's a monetary cost to implementing a code of ethics. The Congressional Budget Office has estimated it would cost as much as $5 million for budget years 2022 through 2027 if the United States Supreme Court implemented a code of ethics. Those costs would include things like collecting information, auditing, and reporting requirements. Mm-hmm. Carl? I think Judge Stevens has done an excellent job highlighting some of the concerns and the disadvantages. 
we mentioned recusals a little earlier, and Judge Stevens mentioned recusals, and the fact that unlike the Supreme Court here, for example, when a justice recuses, another judge subs in for a retired justice. That doesn't occur in, in the United States Supreme Court. And so I can easily imagine in this current hyper-partisan environment, this highly contentious political environment that uh, an ethics code, even if it's aspirational, even uh, even if it's just uh, strengthening of the recusal statutes or specific application of the recusals, current federal judge recusal statutes to the justices, because as I understand it now, they've they generally follow it, but haven't conceded that it necessarily applies, that even the application of those recusal statutes, just as Judge Stevens said, can have profound impacts on, on the resolution of national legal questions. As you can imagine, if you're a partisan on the left, I can certainly see which justices you may be inclined to want to recuse. If you're a partisan on the right, I can immediately identify or think of justices that side of the political spectrum would like to recuse. You can imagine the the instability that sort of environment would create, where you'd actually have an ethics code and the recusal provisions in an ethics code driving the outcome of Supreme Court decisions, which is sort of an upside down practical result that I think partisans on either side would never want to see. What about the existing safeguards? Voluntary recusal, financial disclosures, the ban on accepting gifts. Are these sufficient, Judge Spillane? Uh, no, I don't think they are sufficient. I think they're great. I think they make sense and they work well, but I think not having a code is a problem. Just not having that, that is a fundamental problem with the court. and. You know, we're weighing things and we just heard about the disadvantages. But one thing we've heard, and it's become a big issue now with last year's many of the decisions, the power of our whole independent branch of government is based on people's trust and the appearance of the court. And that's more true than anything the U.S. Supreme Court, which is the most powerful court, a final court, and truly an independent branch of government. So... I think not having a code, which is mostly aspirational, it's not black and white, fine. It aren't like, you know, set rules. Like, you know, we have some rules that you can't hear a case involving your immediate family, things like that. But, you know, generally most of the recusal and, and aspirational ethical are not black and white. I think have, not having a code at all is a appearance problem and can only get worse now that the justices have an opportunity to be in the public space in terms of the internet, speeches, things, you know, there's just more transmission of, of what they do. So I, I, I think no rules are, and if, you know, surely if the rules are good for other federal judges, I think they're, um, they're, they're good for that. Now, I would say that on such a thing, because I do think for the U.S. Supreme Court, their power is so much based on the public's acceptance of that power. I think the other justices making those decisions, having everyone else on a decision, if it really becomes problematic and we do have a code, would be my solution to that. Because that, again, I think that the Chief Justice and all the justices 
part of what they have to do think about when they're making decisions. That's why we have starry decisis. One of the reasons is about how is the courts going to be seen and and what is their appearance through their decision. So I think um, my enforcement would be through the other justices, um, given that we have them. Judge Stevens? I guess my question to you, Peter, is sufficient for what purpose? I agree with Judge Spillane that there is an incredible benefit to having a uniform code and it sends a clear message. And I think that's very important. But are the safeguards sufficient? Voluntary recusal, financial disclosure, and the, sta the statute on gifts. So I guess my, my answer to that would be maybe. All the existing safeguards do require voluntary compliance by each individual justice since the United States Constitution forbids Congress from reducing salaries or removing a justice from office except through the impeachment process. So the United States Supreme Court has agreed to follow all of the requirements so far that have been established by Congress. And it's although unclear whether or not the court would choose to comply with any congressional law that would require them to create a code of ethics. Having said that, I do agree that none of these existing safeguards uh, measures address the public's perception about the United States Supreme Court and adopting a code of ethics would send a message to the public that the integrity and partiality and independence are critical to their jobs, just like every other employee. And in addition, it would create a standard that would apply to their staff as well, which currently uh, there is no code that applies to them. We've already talked around this issue, but let's address it directly. Can and should a code of conduct be binding on the court? Judge Spillane? Well, uh, yes, under my framework, and mm -hmm. um, and Judge Stephen makes a great point about the staff because that's, you know, the judge gets punished, but the court is more than just, and we've even seen now with, with leaks and other things, and, and the ability for more leaks to occur is greater. Um, having a rule that the staff are aware of that's written in words is equally helpful to guide that staff. I, I really do believe, and I think it's very important that we're an independent branch of government. That is always gonna be under attack, kind of the way we have it set up. Attacks are normal, but we've seen that an, an extreme reaction to things that are quote unquote normal and I think the independence is important. So I do believe ultimately a decision, say, on a recusal or something where a judge, I think the rest of the U.S. Supreme Court should make a binding decision. That would be the way I would do it. I think it would be very hard to have Congress or a lower courts actually make binding decisions on that, uh, which is different. That is the one different thing. That's the only different thing. And I think that can work well because then the whole U.S. Supreme Court is controlling their appearance. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think that we have to throw out everything and say, well, because we have them being kind of self-enforced that we can't even have an ethics, you know, or an ethics canon for the U.S. Supreme Court or, or they don't have to follow uh, what, what other federal judges do. I think that we can have it binding, but I would have it binding within the U.S. Supreme Court and the other justices. I'm feeling more and more maybe like an outlier in this discussion because, and or maybe I'm just too practical. I'm just thinking to myself, as Judge Spillane was, was 
giving his last response, it, you know, as a practical matter, do we really want, even if it were aspirational, even if it were self-enforcing, can we really envision a situation where, say, for example, a majority of fellow justices essentially votes off one of their colleagues? In other words, bars that colleague from participation in the case? I mean, setting aside the constitutional implications of that sort of thing, I, I, I'm not sure whether that's likely to occur. In other words, given the collegiality among all of them, as I understand it is, as they always maintain, even across partisan divides, they, you know, they always maintain that high level of collegiality. Given that, and given their constitutional roles, I don't know that that's ever that that sort of policing or removing each other is is ever likely to occur or ought to occur. But here's one other point, though, that keeps crossing my mind. You know, this this discussion is great, but it's, it's sort of premised in the beginning on that public trust and confidence in the court is falling, at least in part, because of the lack of an ethics code. I suspect if, if you nabbed somebody on the sidewalk outside the courthouse here and asked them why they think the U.S. Supreme Court is troubled lately or, or declining in, in public trust and confidence, I, I doubt very many members of the public would say it's because they lack an ethics code for themselves. You know, that's an environment. Those are considerations that we operate in every day, and, and I think admirably so. But for the general public, I, I'm not sure the decline in public trust and confidence in the courts and every other public institution for that matter has very much to do with a code with the lack of a code at all. I, I think it's it's more likely the partisan, I don't know if you want to call it the noise, but the partisan conflict that that the court finds itself embroiled in and, and has for generations really. There is something different here, I know. During the Roosevelt administration, for example, probably as far as I know, I'm no historian, but nobody said, well, the court doesn't have a code, and so therefore it ought to stop stamping out, you know, it's, it's illegitimate when it stamps out President Roosevelt's New Deal provisions. I just don't see that much of a connection. I, I don't think the public cares, frankly, on that individual level. I think it's broader, it's more political than that. And so I'm not sure I, I buy into the, the premise of the discussion sort of foundationally. The person on the street may not be thinking about that, but I think we've seen, and I think more so than any institution, and maybe that's given the age and experience of Supreme Court justices and the institution itself, but we've seen that where, where norms are out there to really protect an institution and its legitimacy that those norms can be violated. And I actually think, number one, if we had one justice that totally violated the norms, because we've seen, for the most part, they don't. We, we, there's cases where we're, and we're, we're a little bit surprised, and then we learn that there is no ethics <laughs> rules and the justice can do what they want. But if we had one justice that just really did violate the norms, I actually think that the other justices, regardless of the political leanings of those justices and, and even the collegiality, would want to have probably some sort of enforcement mechanism. Maybe we that maybe that has not happened, that we haven't seen that. So we're talking about something that 
hasn't happened. But if it hasn't really happened, then I'm not really sure. I just don't see the argument that there should not even be a code of ethics for the U.S. Supreme Court. That doesn't make sense. The fact that enforcement is difficult, or we could think in scenarios, I think what would happen is the enforcement would only come into play because they are collegial, I think, regardless of their leanings, when someone completely violates the norms. And I think we do need some framework because we've seen we didn't have other frameworks when norms have been violated and that becomes problematic and then things really change and then we have radical change where people want to add more justices or other things that are much more radical than a normal enforcement of a code of ethics a simple code of ethics so i agree with carl i think that any code of ethics would likely leave it to the individual justice to decide if they should recuse or disqualify themselves in a particular case i don't see there being a panel of judges or justices to sit there and decide whether or not someone should be recusing and i think there are constitutional concerns about that as well what i will say though is that once i was asked to be on this panel i did speak with a number of other judges and and attorneys and even folks on the street that I know uh, and ask their opinion about, do you think that the United States Supreme Court should have a code of ethics? Most of them were surprised to learn there was no such code of ethics and not a single one said, no, they should not have a code of ethics. Now, most of those people, attorneys, judges, haven't thought through the implications of it and, and how you enforce it. But I think that just having the code of ethics in place sends a message and it's an important message. And even if enforcement is no different from what we have now, uh, which is a decision by a justice to recuse because they believe they have a conflict of interest, I still think there's a, a huge value in having a code of ethics for the Supreme Court. Finally, let's circle back to the central question. Should the U.S. Supreme Court adopt a code of conduct? Judge Stevens? Well, I guess recognizing the enforcement limitations that any code of ethics would uh, surely have, my opinion is still a solid yes, even if it is form over substance, because I do believe that it sends a message that the United States Supreme Court is a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do court and would recognize that most public and private entities have codes of conduct for their organizations and employees, and it is a best practice. And it would uh, send a clear message, and I think it's one that needs to be sent, and I think it also would establish standards for the Supreme Court workforce, and they are not currently, as we've discussed, covered by any code of ethics. Carl? You know, when we first scheduled this discussion, I I was inclined to think that even aside from my concerns about logistics, that it's just good PR if the Supreme Court were to adopt even just some broad set of principles or an ethics code, even on the most general level. And perhaps it's my role as an administrator that makes me preoccupied with those logistics and difficulties and implementation questions. And Two, I try to set aside my natural inclination to be an ardent defender of judicial independence, but I keep thinking to myself that the United States Supreme Court is by its nature, on purpose, structurally unique and settles the most profound questions that the nation brings to them. And so I have great reservations about an ethics code adopted only for PR purposes or an ethics code adopted only because the, some members of the public think they ought to have one. 
when in fact, when it comes to enforcement and who imposes and what would the sanctions be and what would the consequences be? And will political actors use it as a cudgel or a baseball bat against justices who you'd rather not have on a particular case? When I keep all those issues in mind, I have great reservations about adopting a code for the United States Supreme Court. Judge Spillane? Yes, uh, you know, I agree with what Judge Stevens just mentioned. I think for appearance wise and also to establish just a very simple standard, the U.S. Supreme Court should adopt a code of conduct. I like what, you know, Carl brought up the man on the street. And I do think that more than any other court, the U.S. Supreme Court depends on the man on the street. And we all depend on a strong, independent U.S. Supreme Court. But like Judge Stevens mentioned, I think if you ask most people they would on the street, they would assume, yes, they have to follow the same rules. And they're probably better at following those same rules than, uh, than other judges even. But they would assume that there is a basic canon that they follow if they were asked. So I think that in terms of the appearance of the court, it really is helpful to have a code of conduct, even though it's aspirational and the enforcement can be tough. I want to thank Judge Sherry Stevens, Judge Ed Spillane, and Carl Tonis for their thoughts and observations on whether the U.S. Supreme Court should adopt a code of conduct. This burning issue is front and center in today's volatile political atmosphere. I'm happy we had a chance to look at the implications of the question. As always, my thanks to you court professionals tuning in to today's episode. I always appreciate the professional and ethical demeanor with which you carry out your duties. Thank you. Join us on Tuesday, February 21st, for another episode dealing with the issues facing our courts. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast on courts and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook, on iTunes, on LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakemnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you would like to listen to again, but you don't want to search through the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section of the webpage contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it is the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time in the episode and listen to the panelists' comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management. 